0: Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is our usual co-host, Captain Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief for Proceedings Magazine. Bill, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Ward. It's great to be back in, uh, in Beach Hall here. It's a little cold. In but freezing it's, cold Annapolis. But it's gorgeous. Yeah. So how was your holiday?
1: It was awesome. I was up in New Hampshire where the temperatures overnight a couple nights were minus 12. Oh my gosh. So that was a bit of a shocker to my system but uh, you know nice to be up there family friends everything Uh, and and good to be back in the new year.
0: So uh, it is good to be back and uh, we're ready for a really really action-packed 2018. Uh, Just remind everybody we'll be out in San Diego about this time next month.
1: I think 6th, 7th, uh, six, six, and 8th. Uh. Yeah,
0: it's uh, the annual FCA US and I West Conference. Um, go online and look at the agenda. As always, it's amazing with uh, leaders and cool topics and things going on. We're also going to debut our brand new T-shirt, which is really cool. Um, in fact, if you follow me me on Twitter, um, at Ward Carroll, I just uh, revealed what the design looks like Um we just got our uh, CEO Admiral Pete Daly just approved the design. It's pretty cool, pretty edgy. We like it. It's a little retro. It's sort it, it's retro, 18, but also seventy
1: three Admiral Warden with his yep. ZZ top
0: beard. Yeah, uh, yep. But it's kind it, of a it, Che Guevara thing going on. That's right. You know. Um, <laughs> and so uh, we think it's an on arrival classic. So if you're going to be there, look for us, and we'll uh, we'll give you one. We're not going to be selling. Them. We're going to be handing them out. Yeah. So. Uh, first 200 we'll walk away with uh with our new t-shirt and you're going to want to be in the gym and uh, at the beach you're going to be the guy or girl with the, the coolest t-shirt so you're going to want to be be there and, and get that t-shirt um what else is going on anything else we should chat about before we get well the, the january issue the of proce-
1: yeah the january issue of proceedings is out uh, january is always the surface force uh focused um magazine so uh, great picture of uh, DDG on the cover, uh, you know, crashing through some waves. And uh, in the in the magazine, a number of hard-hitting pieces uh, on the surface forces. Um, as as you mentioned, Ward, uh, just before Christmas, we had on our podcast as a guest uh, Captain Kevin Iyer, uh retired, who uh, commanded three Aegis cruisers, uh, who has written extensively about. Um, uh, what happened after the Fitzgerald and the McCain and uh, you know he got into some of the root causes with articles in twenty seventeen and then uh, he started us off with a bang uh in the January issue with an article titled "What Happened to Our Surface Forces," where he goes back and uh and just really details twenty five years of of decisions. Um, that got the Navy where it is in terms of surface force readiness and the training um, you know sort of bathtub that it got into uh, you know how did how did we get to a year in 2017 where we had you know two Aegis destroyers um, having very bad collisions uh, lethal collisions uh, so that's a great piece we also have a piece by Abba Rowden your classmate retiring the, the, the head of uh, surface forces um, And before we jump into, you know, talking about those, uh, I'll introduce our guest today. Uh, So we have on the line from Norfolk, from Fleet Forces Command, uh, Fleet Master Chief Paul Kingsbury, who is the Fleet Master Chief for Fleet Forces Command, and he is also a member of the Naval Institute's editorial board and a proceedings author and uh, also soon to be um, author of or an editor of uh, the CPO guide, which uh, the, the revised CPO guide, uh, which Master Chief Kingsbury uh, helped us uh, help the, the books department, the press redo uh, should be hitting the streets uh, in 2018. So uh, Master Chief Kingsbury, welcome.
2: Hey, thanks, Bill. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year. Uh,
1: so, Paul, um We've, you know, we've talked about on the podcast a lot uh, about, you know, the, the surface fleet. We've talked about the McCain and the Fitzgerald. We talked about the comprehensive review that fleet forces did. Um, what are you seeing down in Norfolk uh, and as you visit ships across the waterfront and, uh, and get out to uh, San Diego, et cetera? Uh, what are you seeing in terms of changes happening right now uh, in training in readiness and maintenance as a result of the problems that the fleet had in
2: 2017. Gotcha. Um, So a a couple things, uh, as as you've seen when you read through, you know, all the literature, all the articles, through a comprehensive review, through the strategic readiness review, um, some of the things that were identified, um, yeah, those were kind of recent things, but other things were more long-term problems that – Things like the Baylal report g a o reports had commented on, and frankly, in some cases um the fleet commanders were taking action on some things, so as I kind of went along and learned some of those things, um let's you know I want to make it clear that hey, um commanders weren't just sitting there in the dark, right there was a, an awareness of hey, we're kind of we've gone through uh you know gotten into this bathtub, as we call it, um but as you all know, what it, you know in many cases to rebuild that readiness. It takes money and it takes focus and investment um and i know when i got to the fleet uh, forces headquarters um, i definitely saw um, my boss boss's staff uh, starting to already prioritize and, and advocate to get more resources to rebuild readiness um, under admiral gordon we had implemented the optimized fleet response plan to try to add some predictability to deployment schedules um, to get ships the maintenance time they needed um because of the indicators we were seeing that came out of all the things that frankly uh many people have written about uh and had identified so in some cases some of these things are going to take some time but i think uh, you've seen uh, um, uh vice admiral Roden's article captured pretty much hey here's some of the things that we're doing immediately um and these things are only relatively recent um in the last couple months so i don't know if we're going to specifically see the the uh a long-term change to them, but I think what you've got now, uh, definitely as my boss walks around, you know, goes around to the fleet concentration areas and does his um, brief to uh, fleet staffs uh, and others on his findings of the CR, um, is an awareness that, yeah, bad things can happen on surface ships and they're not immune to things that other communities are seeing. Um, I know that we 're investing you know when we look at the you know and i I primarily you know when I look at my focus, I look around and i go, okay you know c n o vice c n o my boss you know um secnav they 're having big discussions on the strategic kind of stuff where they need to recapitalize where they need to invest broader process kind of things um I always look at what 's the cheese mess role in this and what are the conversations I need to be having with the cheese mess as I go forward
0: so, so what are some of those things you
2: think so yep so uh so a lot of my experience, just like you know many of us, um, are bound on, on how I grew up and the culture I grew up. And I was a surface nuke electrician, right an aircraft carrier guy. I did serve on the Mississippi uh, when we had new cruisers. So um, although nuclear, you know, I got surface force stuff, and as you know or you're aware of, um, nuclear power has a very strong organizational culture. Uh, and it has it for a reason, right, because the thing uh, – there's a thing called cost of outcome. Um, when bad things happen in nuclear power, uh, think Chernobyl, think Three Mile Island, think others, um, the consequences you know, are pretty traumatic. Uh, and you see this um, varying in cultures across the Navy, right? So as I think Captain Iyer talked to about this, he speaks to this. He didn't necessarily capture it as um, cost of outcome, but you know, if I'm in an aircraft – you know, you know, 777 and I'm flying a couple hundred people around, something goes bad. You know, the, the possibility for all those people to go down, uh, that gets worldwide response. Uh, it's pretty traumatic to a lot of people. If I'm in a submarine and I mess up, um, there's a potential to take a crew of over 100 down to the bottom and lose that asset. So that cost of outcome high. So the controls that are put in place in those communities and the adherence to strong watchstanding principles that I grew up under – um, formal communications, questioning attitude, having strong level of knowledge, following procedures, having integrity, um, and then forceful backup. Those kind of behaviors that make strong teams um, are evident in those communities. So what I think you've realized now is, frankly, it was lagging, as many as have identified, in the surface force. It was being talked about. I know that several for, uh, former SWO bosses they have nuclear backgrounds, and they come in and talk, but to ingrain that culture uh, into a force takes time. Uh, so that's where I think uh, you're seeing now is this kind of realization that, okay, yes, what's name principles matter. Um, we need to standardize procedures, and we need to make sure we're building strong teams within the surface community. Um, I know we've already made some adjustments. We had already at one of the fleet commander's readiness councils, we had already identified the need to evolve QM training and OS training, um, and some things, Some strides have been made there as well um, to improve that.
0: Well, you you bring up uh, some of what uh Kat Meyer mentioned in his article, what happened to our surface forces. Um, let me quote um, one paragraph because I think it really is um, – the thesis that he that he talks about, it's a wonderful ar- wonderful article. It goes much deeper than any of the discussions um, we've had to date, and and talks about because you mentioned some of the ship bosses and root cause here. It, it's as much a, a history piece as it is a, uh, um, a lessons learned or where do we go from here sort of a thing. But let me read this yep. this paragraph because you you just alluded to it uh, in terms of the consequences, uh, Paul, when you were talking about nuke power. Um, They're dire, right? And so what he says um, here is, uh, and I I quote, Conversely, this need for precision is neither broadly recognized nor internally supported when it comes to getting a surface combatant underway. After all, ships do not sink, even when they are woefully designed or maintained. And even if things go terribly wrong, ships operate almost exclusively in international waters and could be towed to port. In fact... Because ships are resilient, many people have come to accept that the exactitude required for submarines and aircraft can be balanced on the inexactitude that is evidently acceptable for ships. The evidence of this is manifest, and the list of ships experiencing casualties while underway, casualties of the sort that would have spelled disaster in a submarine or aircraft, is long and infamous. Yet for the Navy and the nation there was never a danger of terminal failure that is short of an unprepared service force in the event of an outbreak of major war so i think that brilliantly frames the sort of starting it, point that allows the it, surface it majors. absolutely does
1: and, and that paragraph that section starts off with the the headline the balancer right and and Kevin just does a, a, an absolutely great job of going back, as you said, the the history lesson here, going back to the early 90s, some changes in the structure uh, of the surface forces, in the leadership structure of the surface forces, and in decisions about readiness where, uh, you know, the, the submarine community would not accept, uh, you know, any kind of um, uh, maintenance shortfalls that would... It, well, I mean, it's a, it's a zero defect community. It is absolutely a zero doctrinally, defect doctrinally by right. law. Right. right, 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 and and uh, and, the, and the, the the air community is as well um, as a result of very very hard learned lessons. Natops in, in, is written in blood. Right, Natops is written in blood, and the surface community. Uh, you know, when the Navy had to take cuts, uh, the, the, the cuts were taken largely out of the surface community and not out of those other two communities. So, so Kevin, you know correctly points out that this was the balancer, right? The other thing that I think is very important to to point out is that the decisions made in the in the early to mid-2000s, uh, you know, Admiral Clark was the CNO, but, Admiral, but um, uh, you know, Secretary Rumsfeld was the secretary who came to power in the Pentagon, uh, and he was a very difficult guy to disagree with, right? And Rumsfeld was big on business practices and efficiencies. Yeah, leaning out. And, and he was you know,
0: seriously leaning on the Army. Yeah,
1: cutting costs, yeah. right? And so that mindset trickled down through the, the service chiefs, and Admiral Clark was the service chief. He was a SWO, um, and then this, the uh, the head SWO, Admiral LeFleur, under him, they made these business practice changes or adapted business practices that sounded good in Wharton and Harvard Business School, but were not about war fighting. They were about efficiencies and about cutting costs and finding ways to, you know, uh, prepare, you know, produce readiness at the least possible cost. A- and as a result, you hollowed out the force.
0: So uh- – sorry about my voice i'm i've got a cold like most people on the east coast yeah. so so paul this this what we're talking about this time frame takes place i mean basically this is the the mid phase of your career um yep. what, what what did you see on the deck plates during this this time yep. i'm sure so I'm, it was frustrating uh, I'm going,
2: yeah i'm going back i'm a uh chief young senior chief at the time and i remember do you know, this new fleet business course, right, that rolled out online. Um and I remember a lot of talk about um uh it, it's alluded to in this article. There were some things that that were going on that were kind of forward leaning things we could do. Um it all sounded good. This is when Revolution and Training came out.
1: Swass um, in a box. Um, this this part is where of we're that. gonna have
2: the five vector model, right? So when you saw it, you know, it all sounded good. Obviously the you know the, the car got way in front of the horse and many of these things, because you know, never got uh, the resourcing it needed. Um, but those are the things, you know, once again, I was, I was pretty insulated as a nuke, but those are the things that come to mind. And the other thing I, I remember watching at the time was um, there was a talk now of getting, because uh, uh, McPon Scott was a McPon at the time, um, and there was, you know, was the first one that um, Admiral Clark had. And then, uh, you know, when he retired, uh, Joe Campa came in after him. So this is when we started this kind of – there was a lot of talk about, hey, i got this enlisted force. It's more educated. It's more capable. What can we do with it? And we started exploring some other other initiatives such as the Division Officer to C program. Um, um, We started sending some CMCs to the War College, and there was a lot of talk back then of blurring of the lines. And frankly, I recommend – you know what I mean? We started talking about, hey, a degree requirement for chief petty officers. So – even there, you started to kind of um, tinker with ideas of kind of traditional focus and functions of even the cheese mess. It wasn't just, you know, where you were investing and things like that. That thinking went into those things as well.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting point from the enlisted senior enlisted perspective because, you know, one of the things that – when Kevin gets to the, the, um, uh, the conclusions in this article – you know, he, he says the surface force needs to shelve the ideal that as our best officers move up, they as, they must also move away from ships. We need to let surface warfare officers be surface warfare officers and start valuing ships above ensuring that all our officers become as broad as possible. And that, you know, what you just mentioned, Master Chief, is uh, is a bit like that on the senior enlisted. Hey, let's send some of the Master Chiefs to War College. Let's make sure that our chiefs have college degrees. It, it It's, again... It sounds great right at first blush but it may be dividing their attention from the the basic skills of watch standing and you know safety at sea
2: yeah and, and you can and um, training
1: young sailors
2: yeah and uh, so as I think through this right because um, you're I mean literally the the point is there so you do um, because of as we you know this you know, the history, I love that. I love the Captain Iyer's history approach because you got to to understand where you are and where you need to go. You do have to go back and kind of understand, okay, how did we get here, right? So when I, I started looking back, you know, enlisted force stuff, you know, obviously we came out of the Navy. I go back into the, the 60s when we established the MCPON, right? You had an enlisted force. Um, obviously, um, the, the concern, the culture of that Navy wasn't being effectively managed, right? Because retention was not good. Racism was rampant. Drug use was crazy. right? So it took the Secretary of the Navy at the time to come in and go, hey, friggin', let's go pulse the fleet and see what's going on. Um, and one of those recommendations was establishing what would become the MCPON's office. And as these MCPONs actually gained some credibility and the value add was seen, you could see where things were put into place to really what they did was they professionalized um, the enlisted force. And then through other things that Congress put in place like the GI Bill and a more aggressive GI Bill and tuition assistance, you educated the enlisted force. So 50 years forward, and then also you shifted to an all-volunteer Navy, which slowly increased the standards of those that enlist in the Navy. So now you do have – and it was being recognized um, that uh, – I would call it you know, almost a you – know, that culture gap between officer and enlisted was closing um, – Moving forward, so you've got this potential within the enlisted force to do a lot more than you usually, you know, what you you could in the past. Um, But that doesn't mean you necessarily need to do that, right? So you got to be very mindful of just because someone can, um, that you don't send them on a path away from core functions. So when I first got in the job, you know, my discussion with Admiral Davidson was, you know, he was concerned with, hey, you know, where's the focus of the cheese mess? It's been a, a thing I've been, you know, after the two years I've been in the seat is okay, as the Navy repostures itself for the high end fight and we've learned some other things, um, what is the focus of our Navy Chiefs mess? Are they ready? Do they have a war fighting attitude? Is their focus on the right stuff? Do they come to work, you know, thinking their job is to fulfill administrative requirements, or do they come to work um with the attitude that this is a war fighting platform that needs to be in a high state of readiness? and I have to train sailors to operate it to the highest degree going forward. So there's lots of lines of effort out of this Um, working, you know, what does the selection board tell chief petty officers to do, you know, based on what we um, put out uh, in the precepts and the convening order. Um, How You know, we started to finally, for a while now, we've rebuilt that enlisted footprint back into the maintenance centers. Because if you want self-sufficiency and maintenance at sea, um, that's where we traditionally built it was that tour at sima, or an FRC. Um, we're looking at, you know, what are we doing with our advancement process and the rigor we put into that because that's how you develop, you know, technical and, and, and institutional expertise in your force. Um, and then, obviously, you know, I look around at different cultures and I go, okay, I look at the sub- submarine force, yeah, they're pretty so – I, I guarantee I can go on there and I got strong – a strong sense of team, and I got strong watchstanding principles in there. Nuke power has it, um, you know, cockpits of aviation, though. So, out of this, one of my key things is working with the force mass chief to go, "Hey, we got to get these these watchstanding principles." Uh, first of all, ingrained in the chiefs' mess, so that they you know they get them and they can uh, they know what they're looking for. But when I look at uh, as we were going through the comprehensive review, and I was looking at uh, you know the root causes hey, I got it. I could talk the organizational failures and the strategic failures, but if you go down the list of watchstanding principles, if those were sound and in place on those bridge watch teams, those collisions would have been prevented. So I start there and go, okay, that's where I'm after. Let's influence the cheese mess. Um, I wrote about it in the the updated CPO guide because it wasn't talked to there. But I'm convinced of all the things I took out of nuke power, those watchstanding principles – uh, are crucial and they apply across all communities
0: you, you know as i'm reading this article um it, it's it just sort of cracks me up because we all remember um the sort of buzzword compliance of the era you know i mean we're, we're talking about um condition-based maintenance we're talking about revolution and training um you, you know all of all the 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 business speak um, it just really was buzz buzzword compliant and i know in the chief's mess paul um you know you guys always are the conscience of of any unit any command not to mention the 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 the, the fleet uh you know across the board um and you know to your point about these mishaps would not have occurred had there been sound watch standing practices never mind the programmatics, never mind the, the insidious you know things about uh, you know, swass in a box or whatever, you know, it, it really does come down to just the, the basics. But to, just to you know, again, how did we get here?, yep. I remember um, that the Rumsfeld early tenure um, was all about this efficiency, leaning organizations out, and so Admiral Clark enters his job against that atmosphere and people forget because nine eleven changed everything to put it mildly yep. you know and when we think of the neocons and we think of profiteering we think of halliburton we think of waste right i mean it's like it, it, you, you you don't assign this idea of trying to find efficiencies right to Supp- that administration budgets and all that yeah stuff. it was right. just like right. it was the go go oh one to oh three era you know um and the books have been written about, you know, the, the huge sums of money that were heaped upon uh, contractors and various things. So we forget what brought us to this this place where we're leaning out the force by doing this sort of too cute by half look at manpower on ships and watch standing requirements and, you know, days at sea and in-serve inspections. How many can you not do that? I mean, when you say condition-based maintenance... That sounds like when things start to rust, now you want to deal with it.
2: Yep. Right? And we right. moved away from 3M inspections. I remember right. that. And, yeah. And, so and it's the, like
0: when the wing falls off, you realize the airplane needs to be worked on. Yep. Yeah. And and in 2006,
1: uh, ships regularly began to fail board of inspection and survey, in-serve inspections, which is part of the last you know untainted barometer of a ship's health. Right? Yeah. That's what uh, Kevin points out. And then uh as a result of that they they uh first they made in-serve uh reports classified so that you know we buried the fact that our sh- ships were failing them and that's the first time ever that even during the cold war we didn't classify in-serve inspection results is that why that happened y- uh, yes Those and sneaky bastards and, and then uh uh you know so there was just this this uh
0: you know, well, okay. We're w- we to hide the cost.
1: We're going to we're going to cut the costs, and then if if there's any kind of indicator that 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 there's a problem, we're going to hide that. Right? right.
0: So, and this is and woe we'll be unto the CEO. And I know the master chief can relate to this, the CEO that is an honest broker about readiness. You know, because they're all like, oh, you know, I want you to tell me how it is. You know, the the Dez run will come up. You know, don't lie to me now, right? You know, that's. Right. That's the, the the path to, you know, early exit from the service. You know, yep. you, you want to pack minus fit rep, then you go ahead and tell the truth about your, the material condition of your ship, right? So, but the last straw in terms of what led to McCain and Fitzgerald is, okay, so you have all of this, lean it out, and, and that's how you're going to get ahead in the Clark era, right? The Clark LaFleur era. You know, come to me with these cool, innovative ideas that you learned at at Harvard Business School or Wharton or that you saw in that seven seven traits of of efficient people you know right. the Covey book or whatever that one's called right and that that was the sort of and you know how this it go, it's sort of this atmosphere that, that proliferates um, and it's that tone is set by the boss right now so fast forward to the 2012 time frame and what happens sequestration so now you have a no lie budgetary constraint. Against this other atmosphere where we 've leaned everything out, right. so even if you wanted to do planned maintenance, you don 't have the money to do it so that was the final straw and and Kevin does this really nice job of bulletizing. What the realities, as he calls them, were years of declining maintenance funds, years of reduction in maintenance time, decreased size of the fleet, increased demand for ships at sea, gutting of external programs and organizations designed to assist in the maintenance of ships, return to high-demand real-world undersea warfare as new challengers went or returned to sea, slash training for officers and enlisted persons, implementation of, quote, efficiency after efficiency. you yep.
1: know, And I've
0: mentioned this in previous
1: podcasts, but also... And as you said, you know, we tend to think of the Rumsfeld-Bush, you know, 2001, post-9-11 as as big defense budgets, right? And they were. Then there were supplementals. And it was all about, you know, putting forces in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq and fighting, uh, you know, um, al-Qaeda, which is all true. Um, But at the same time, because the Marine Corps and the Army were getting chewed up in those places – Guys like Admiral Mullen said, hey, we need to help our marine brethren. We need to help our army brethren. And so the Navy reached into, uh, into ships, into individual units and pulled people out for individual augmentation deployments, right? And so we took guys out of ships, we put them, uh, you know, on these IAs in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I think that was the right thing to do. I'm not criticizing that decision because the Marines and the Army, yeah, they, no, were, it's just a
0: fact. It's just what it, happened. It, it is a fact. Right? It, it it's happened. It's not a judgment,
1: right? Um, but as a result of that, uh, you know, that hollowed out the force even more. And I remember being on the on the staff of, uh, Cargroup Four, CSFTL, and we were we were trying to get um, ships and units and squadrons and air wings ready for deployment in the 2006 to 2008 timeframe. Uh, and we would find that they would come to COM2X, which is the integrated training phase, and they were not through with their, their unit-level training requirements. And the reason they weren't ready for the, the integrated phase is because many of their people, their key people, had been in Iraq and Afghanistan when the ship was in ULT. And so suddenly they're, like, getting their people back just in time for COM2X, and they're, they're not ready. You know, so all of these things sort of snowballed. And then, as you said, uh, sequestration comes in 2012 and the realization of the problems, but there's no money to fix it. So.
2: Yeah, and then you got to uh, – so you kind of touch on it too, but it goes back to, you know, also we came out of the Cold War and kind of what with the strategic focus of the country, right? Because that's where you allocate money. So we were – right, the Navy I came into, right, 600 ships, uh, probably double the number of sailors we had, right? opposed to fight a high end Soviet Union peer to peer kind of competition. Once they collapse in ninety one, um a lot of things happen, right? And then on this journey and this transition towards the Middle East, it's just not just the Navy, but DOD at large, right, we draw down, but um they pass that bill and you know where we draw down by a hundred thousand, they simply reinvest the Marines and Army because that is the conflict that there that there's ne- or that is present. So um no, that's you right. Know, that's right. And the gotta, other thing you, you can't you can't necessarily constantly just criticize the people in the past like what were they thinking? No, because they were presented right. a hand, you know what I mean? Right. But we had to as a navy, um, yeah, we didn't have that kind of peer adversary anymore, so with the funds shifting and dwindling, uh, you know, they took risk in the surface force, right? Um, hey, I don't have a major peer adversary right now at sea, so I'm gonna shift to power projection support of land forces ashore. Um and hence we got in trouble, right, with over-deploying carrier strike groups because the appetite for power projection was what we were all about then too. Um, so I think you got – once again, it's another piece of just several things that came to play. Uh, but unfortunately, ultimately, all that stuff falls on the back of sailors, right, because when you – when the CO doesn't speak up or you cut the funds or you know people don't get that story, um, the risk decision-making gets pushed very low. And, thing, and then you couple that with a can-do attitude, right, which is great, but it's kind of bad, too. Yeah, it's either um,
1: can-do or never say no, right? That's right. You know, it yeah. becomes, and it's,
2: you, a, it's a two-edged you know I mean? sword. You, you get bad at you know balancing the must-do attitude with the can-do. Uh, that's where you get yourself in trouble, too, when people stop saying no um, or unable to effectively trans up, translate up why, um that's a piece of it as well.
0: Well, and there's this other part, especially around, because when, Bill, you bring up the IA, the Individual Augmentee Program, um, and, uh, I mean, Dave Adams was an Individual Augmentee, uh, right. yeah, and he was a you know, provincial reconstruction team. So, you know, say you're on the car group four staff, and you've gapped a billet, and the guy comes back. So the unintended consequence of taking an IA is it's a brain drain. Right, right. But what are you going to say to that guy? You know, it's like, so what did you do? Well, I hung out in Pectika Province for a year, uh, rebuilding aqueducts and making sure they had cell phone coverage. You know, we got shot at and we had some IEDs. And you know, you're going to go, man, that's amazing. Good for you. Way to step up. You're not going to go, well, you screwed us because you volunteered oh, no, for that I job. Did, yeah, right? No, not, but what I'm not... saying is, and this is kind of to Paul's point too. It's the unintended yes result of can do. And then yep. you're not going to point out that hey. CNO or chairman because of your program here, um, which is is stepping up. And because now we have we're a a B League player because this is a ground war. It's a counterinsurgency. We're not doing a war at sea because the Taliban doesn't have any ships or an air force. Right. So how can we help you guys? Right. And so this is kind of what happened to armored units in, you know, there there are other combat arms in the Army, they weren't bringing their tanks. They were doing dismounted patrols. And, you know, it wasn't just unique to the Navy providing submariners to go be provincial reconstruction team leads. But what happens is, meanwhile, back at your core competency, somebody's not there to solve a problem in a timely fashion or have that, that um, you know, corporate knowledge that you possess, the, the this thing that we really pride ourselves on, you know, that's why – you know, regards to warfare, especially, and this is something that it seems like the surface community has discounted to some degree. That you got to do it. It's a, it's a, you know, there's a shelf life in in your skills, right? And and so, that's the other thing that emerges here uh, from McCain and and uh, Fitzgerald is: Do you not consider ship handling as a skill? Are there not some in your wardroom who are better than others, just like a pilot? You know, where every landing's graded, and you know who the good dogfighters are and you know who the guys that are solid behind the boat. You know, all these things are known and measured.
1: All right. you got a greenie board in the ready room. Right. And, right. And
0: so, you know, if it's a, you know, high density uh, scheme of, of traffic, traffic scheme or, you know, a tricky channel entry or pier with a lot of current, you probably know who the rock stars are in your your OODs core and, and who they aren't. Maybe. But do you pride yourself on that? And is that guy rewarded in terms of fit reps and so forth? Is it is it a source of professional advantage? It, to my eye, it never has been. And of course, I'm a brown shoe, so I'm not exactly unbiased well, we, here. We,
1: you know, we posed and, and uh, Master Chief, you're on our editorial board and we always have these brainstorming sessions at the end of the editorial board and back in August or you know July or August, we were having a conversation about this, right? And and I posed that question to our board, and a number of them are surface warfare, you know, senior warfare, surface warfare officers, including Tom Almer, who was on the podcast about a month ago, and they said generally that has not been you know a fit rep delineator, right? We haven't
0: we haven't yeah, broken out point.
1: the best the best ship drivers on a ship are not necessarily the number one you know lieutenant right, in the, on, and all that says to ship. me
0: is. We don't really care. Right. Right. We don't take pride in that. That's what it says to me. We need to. Well, that's the point, right?
2: Yep. I think you need to – another part that's kind of right now is questions. And I think, although it's capture, I think you're really fundamentally asking yourself, okay, who should be doing what right now? And who do I want doing what, right? So when I look at, once again, um, chiefs, right, okay, what are they doing? And are they doing what I need them to do, not what – I kind of think they could do right. So something as simple as um, okay, I got chiefs that are qualifying officer of the deck, right, and TAO. Okay, that's great. They can do it. Um, is that good or bad? Because from the perspective of looking at the wardroom as the place where tactical competence for the command resides, right? That's where the the brain of the ship on how to fight and maneuver that ship resides. Um, where the technical competence uh, of the navy, you know, maintaining it. Uh, resides, frankly, I think, in the chief's mess, and obviously some portion of the wardroom called LDO warrants. Um, So if I get too many chiefs up there staying OOD, frankly, I'm I'm taking officers off the field, quote-unquote, developing their tactical skill sets that they need. So something as small as a selection board that says, hey, advanced qualifications for chiefs gives you competitive advantage, drives chief's mess behavior to take up those slots, right? Uh, And once again, I know they can do it all day They are doing it They do it well And, and hey, in cases where you have uh, gaps in officer billets Yeah, I'll I'll, t- I'll bring a chief on, onto the field to do those billets But in my world of nuke power um, We stand supervisory enlisted watch stations for a reason Because that training of that young officer Extends onto their watch standing too It's not just sitting in the office Teaching them about 3M and evals And how to help sailors transition into adulthood um, it's about, okay, here's how you lead this watch team and making sure that you're best prepared to to succeed as an officer in that role as well. So I think that's what we're looking at now is going, okay, you know, this this concept of, you know, broadening and kind of being prepared for joint tours, a lot of that discussion now is like, okay, maybe that's not the right answer. We need to focus on tactical competence and value that again. We stopped valuing it. That's what's happened so, because of that, your attitude changes, and the behaviors, as you can see, change as well.
0: Um. So, Paul, how is morale in general? Um, when you when you you know do, uh, um, when you're out and about. Um, yep. um, relative um, to t- previous eras, you know, yeah, in, in um, your career.
2: I'm telling. You, so, so I kind of gauge. So, number one, morale is highly command dependent right, it's, it, I'm telling you, more than any kind of process, um, incentive, kind of broad Navy stuff, a solid CO backed up by a strong XO, um, CMC team and a wardroom and cheese mess that they'll eat, you know, what I mean, they'll make morale happen all day for you. So whenever I, you know, it's, it's the same thing we all were taught, right? You walk on board and kind of, it's how you're greeted on the quarter deck. It's how the sailors carry themselves, um, I will tell you a majority of the time it looks good, right? So, you know, from what I see, you know, you get the greetings. You don't see the stuff. That's kind of, you know, compared to the Navy of kind of what I read and heard about in the late 1960s, I mean, you do have a much more professional organization now. Is it perfect? No. Uh, I'll tell you, fleet retention is really good. Um, It's well above our retention goals. Um, And I don't –
1: that's an interest, as long statistic. as you can explain
2: yeah. also right so you know one thing I try to do when I get around the chiefs mess is you know I you know chiefs are managers, right they manage the material condition and the operational readiness of your ship, um and we stop talking about the role as managers, frankly, it's all about leadership leadership, I got it, but no amount of good leadership skill is going to overcome a deficiency in management, but to to effectively manage, you need things right, so number one, you need people, and we know that. I mean, I don't have the distributable inventory right now until I can buy it, and we're we're looking at getting it. But once I've bought it, you know, it's going to take a couple of years to grow it and get it to the fleet. But as long as I can explain to them that, and then they understand how we prioritize um, manning, then they get it, right? Um, parts, supplies they need, you know, those are things. But as long as you can understand and explain to them sometimes the why, copy, they get it. So once again, i got to rely on command-level leadership to be able to to translate the why. So I spent a lot of my time trying to inform the chiefs mess via the force mass chiefs and the other senior enlisted leaders. Hey, here's the big kind of policy decisions being made. Here's where the actual shortfalls are and why so that the chiefs can understand and deliver it, right? They may not like it, but a chief that's informed and can understand the why is a a chief that's in in the best position to deliver that effectively when they need to. And you can see when we went to Frankly, take away ratings. You did not explain the why, and I don't think you had it developed. So you saw how well that went over. No, that was a disaster. <laughs> yeah, we ended up, uh, you know, you know, demonstrating. Casino did well. That yeah, we are a high high-velo- velocity, high velocity learning organization. Apparently. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, that's good stuff. That's, uh, that's funny. Hey, I, I I'd like to just uh, plug a uh, an article that you wrote uh, about a year ago in the January uh, issue of 2017 Proceedings. Uh, called tapping the power of the chiefs, which is just great advice. It's a, it's great advice for the uh, for the goat locker. It's also great advice for for junior officers, right? Uh, because you get into uh, you know the the proper role of a chief in helping to groom and develop a young officer, you know, in, on a ship, submarine squadron, um, you know, and, and the different sources of power, the expert power, the um, the experience power. Uh, that that a chief has uh, that that a that a, you know an ensign or a jg doesn't have right and but over time that young officer is going to develop that by keying off and working with uh a chief in a in a very positive way uh and it, it's just a wonderful piece uh it was a you know came out again a year ago i may i may uh post it up on on uh, social media today or tomorrow just because uh people who didn't Maybe read it a year ago. It's it's a time you know it's a timeless piece because it's about leadership and it's about the role of you know junior officers. It could have been written uh, for me as a JO, or you know it's it's certainly applicable for uh, millennials, uh, for anybody out there. So I I I thought that was a great piece, uh, and it, I think it had something to do with uh, getting you onto our board as well.
2: Gotcha. No, I I mean, uh, yeah, I came across this. Uh, I mean, it's out there, right? Friends and Ravens Power um model you know power bases um and we we kind of br- kind of briefly touch on it on our you know quote-unquote leadership development courses but the more i read about it and the more I explored it i'm like you no one can convince me that if you don't understand power and influence if you don't understand those power bases um you will not do your job as effectively as you can as a leader and i tried to start putting everything i can uh, and frankly i just submitted a uh, something for the NAM about, you know, how we're, um, how our reward power as a Navy, you know what I mean? Um, are we misusing that these days? Um, but I, I would argue anytime if you can, if you can nail down those power bases, you can tie leader success or failure to their ability or, or inability to use power bases and then the, uh, associated influence tactics.
0: Fantastic. Well, we're, uh, we're out of time for this week. Uh, Master Chief, thanks uh, for for joining us. Please pass our uh, our best wishes to uh, my good friend Admiral Davidson, another uh, another class of '82 guy, along with Admiral Roden. All right, um, we'll do. And uh, we'll we'll see you around campus here when the editorial boards uh, happen next. When is that? It's January 24th. It's our next meeting. Okay, so we'll see you up here on January 24th. Okay. Um And just so the audience knows, uh, you know that role, particularly the one that Master Chief. Kingsbury plays on the board is, is crucial. Um, you know, he is, he really is the voice of the fleet. He's the one that makes sure that, uh, um, it's not skewed too too O-centric and, and or too one warfare special over the other. And the diversity of the board is, is only as successful as each member. And, uh, and Paul is, is, he's you know, tough act to follow for sure. Um, really a franchise player in terms of, uh, a Force Master yeah. Chief for one and, thing.
1: And not only has uh, Fleet Master Chief Kingsbury written for proceedings, he's also had an impact, I think, on the number of uh, enlisted entries that we have in our essay contest, not just the enlisted essay contest, but all of our essay contests. Uh, yesterday I was over at the uh, Coast Guard headquarters where we got to uh, award present the awards for the Coast Guard 2017 essay contest, and second place was taken by uh, Boson's mate chief Philip Null, Uh, who is a small boat operator and who wrote about small boat operations uh, in uh, – it's in the January issue of uh, Proceedings. And uh, it it was great to meet Chief Null. And and I mentioned to the audience there that included the Coast Guard's uh, Master Chief uh, that uh, we we have more and more enlisted writers, more and more enlisted – uh, entries uh, and uh, the enlisted force is uh, is just growing in terms of presence in proceedings. That's great to see.
0: Yeah. And we're looking for all comers here. You know, the independent yeah. form is only as good as those who participate. Um, so, you know, if- and
2: I'll continue to work to, to uh, encourage um, people, just like I had someone had to tap me on the shoulder as well and recognize potential and, and uh, explain to them, no, you're not going to get shot in the head. If you write a well-written article, that's uh, properly, uh, Cited and vetted.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and that's what the editorial staff is for. This what the editorial board is for. Uh, you have top cover, uh, but don't let that be the thing that that key, the concern there. Shouldn't be what keeps you from uh, from trying to make it better. And and that's you know we've always talked about the dare factor. Um, you know, as I was sort of thinking about um, twenty eighteen and 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 the tenor of us and I going forward. There's something about the dare factor that troubles me because what it intimates almost unintentionally, is you're risking something, right? So how is it that trying to make the Navy better is a risk, you know? So I'll just leave it there for that. Um, But let me finish with this last statement that Admiral Rowden makes in his piece, uh, which is uh, probably a good place to end off. Every day around the world, sailors of the surface force protect and sustain U.S. security and prosperity by their powerful presence— through which allies and partners are assured and would-be aggressors are deterred. The never-ending job of service warfare leaders is to ensure every one of those sailors has the tactics, tools, talent, and training he or she needs to fight and win. And that's right in keeping with the mission of the Naval Institute. So that's a great place. Again, Paul, thanks for uh, joining us today. We'll see you very soon. Happy New Year uh try to stay out of the snow in the next couple of days and so we're yeah, just we're talking about the terrible weather coming in there does,
1: does yep. the fleet master
0: chief count as mission
1: essential personnel
2: yes i do actually. <laughs> oh good so. that's what you give for being so talented yeah that's right so yeah. there's yeah <laughs> i'll be thinking about that as i'm driving through 10 inches yes
0: bus. yes okay well drive safely yeah thanks for Tough the invite study.
2: again guys uh, great discussion and look forward to having more of it
0: okay fantastic thank you All right, everybody, that's it for this week. Remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.